may be all of you, none of me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You guys may be seated. And if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. Bing Palm Sunday, we're going to take our, a break from our regularly scheduled program of Luke's Gospel and take a look at the original Palm Sunday, where we get the holiday Palm Sunday from. I titled the study today, The Triumphant Entry of Jesus, because that's what we're going to take a look at. You see, Palm Sunday is a day celebrated, commemorating the moment that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you have to ask yourself, what importance is this? When you think about the entry of Jesus into our world, what do you guys picture? What does it mean to you that Jesus came to this world? entered into Jerusalem on a donkey? How does it impact and affect our lives? Well, perhaps to better answer these questions, we should seek to understand what was happening with those Israelites at the time of Jesus' arrival. In our text today, you have to keep in mind that as we're studying this account, that up until Jesus came onto the scene, There was 400 years of silence. From the last book, the last chapter of the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's 400 years where God was not speaking to Israel. That was sometime around 538 BC is where we get our last chapter in the Old Testament. So what was the generation understanding during Jesus' time, what did they believe in in terms of salvation, in, in terms of afterlife and eternity? You see, the Jews, they knew their forefathers' history. They knew about the promise that Abraham was given of a great nation. They also knew that their forefathers were delivered from the Egyptian captivity through signs and wonders. We are going through this tonight, or on Wednesday nights, the Exodus. They knew of the Israelites journeying through the wilderness, how God was constantly and always providing for them in the wilderness. And they knew of the fulfillment that God took them to Israel, the promised land. But the Israelites had a lot of backsliding in their lives. And it would place the nation into a time of silence where God finally stopped speaking to them. And it was during this time that the Romans conquered Israel and they were living under Roman captivity yet they were still able to worship there was a the great Herod the Great he was a little man who liked to make really big things so he created the second temple and he made it awesome and, and amazing during their time and the Jews they still worshiped in the temple And if the Jews had temple worship, they would see on a weekly basis 
animal sacrifice. And it was a common sight for the Jews there in Israel. And every time they saw these animals being sacrificed, they were reminded that their sins needed to be atoned for. That was the whole point of sacrifice. It goes all the way back to when Adam and Eve sinned. Do you guys remember who shed the first blood in the book of Genesis? It was God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they needed then, they, were, they realized they were naked. So they tried to cover themselves with leaves, fig leaves. And then God covered them with animal skins. God showed them what sacrifice was. He showed them that through death, there was a covering for their sins. And that same illustration that God gave them was carried on. Moses sacrificed a lamb. They dipped the blood onto their doorposts, the sign of the cross. And then the angel of death, the destroyer, passed over them. And all the firstborns in Egypt were killed. So they had this idea of what sacrifice was. They were reminded that they needed a covering for their sins. So let's not be mistaken when we look at the Old Testament sacrifice laws and see them only as a works-based system of religion and as something that's unholy. There was a holiness to it. In fact, these offerings required faith to believe God would make atonement and a covering of your sins through these sacrifices. You see, there's still required faith. Now, there were certain Jews who would twist the meaning and make it about their own self-righteous works over a relationship with God. But according to Hebrews 10, 11, it says, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. See, this is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. As the Old Testament sacrifices only provided a covering of their sins. It gave them atonement so they could have that relationship with God. Whereas the New Testament sacrifice, which is Jesus, removed the sins entirely. So throughout their history, God was giving them hope. He was giving Israel promises of hope. He promised them at the beginning in Genesis that through Eve's offspring, the woman's offspring, that her offspring would crush the serpent's head. That's Satan. In Genesis 3.15, God told to the devil, he said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So you see, there was that picture there of Jesus, the Messiah, crushing the head of Satan with his heel, but Satan would bruise his heel because Jesus was crucified. There was pain that Jesus endured, but ultimately we see you crush a serpent's head, it dies. Through the Old Testament, God promised the Israelites that he was going to send a prophet like Moses. In Exodus 18 verse 15, 
It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So God was giving them a hint now. I'm going to send another prophet your way, and he's going to be like Moses. To this day, if you guys don't know, the difference between a Christian and a Jew is that a Jew is still waiting for their Messiah to come. The Christian believes that Jesus was that Messiah. You see, up until Jesus came, the true believers were Jewish in, in their religion. And that means you could also be a Gentile. I mean, you, you could have been Roman and still believed in the Jewish faith. But once Jesus came on the scene and claimed that he was God, claimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life that's when the Jewish people became divided into Jews and Christians. You see, he promised that there was going to be a man, the Messiah, who was both Lord and a son and a priest forever. And you see that in the Psalms, whose body would never decay. In Psalm 16, verse 10, the psalmist writes, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that's hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, all these unfulfilled prophecies, they undoubtedly probably caused a lot of theological debate in Jesus' time because they didn't fully understand the meanings of all these prophecies. Even Jesus asked the Pharisees in Matthew 22, verse 42, he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You see, they probably debated this about who the Messiah would be. But all these prophecies pointed to a coming Messiah that God would redeem his people. God promised that one would come who would be a sin offering in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53 verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Because he poured out his soul into death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now for the Old Testament saints and during Jesus' time, they probably looked at all these prophecies the same way that we look at the prophecies concerning the rapture, concerning the end times, where we have an idea and a glimpse of what these mean, but we don't fully understand yet. We haven't lived through that. So that's where the Jews were at. They were wondering who this Messiah was going to be, what he was going to be like. Now, what's interesting about this day, Palm Sunday, is that there is a prophetic fulfillment of when exactly Jesus came into Jerusalem. In the Old Testament in Daniel, the book of Daniel, which, by the way, you could research the book of Daniel, how it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and look at when it was written, all these documents of when they were written, and then compare that to a New Testament. And you can see that this prophecy was written way before the time that Jesus actually came to the, 
and walked into Jerusalem. But there's an interesting prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. It says this, Now listen and understand seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven, these are years, will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. And if you take the point when Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem and then look at the years that it said it would take to the very day on April 6, 32 AD, we have Palm Sunday, the original. That's Jesus the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And you can look this up in history. Artaxerxes gave that command in March 14th, 445 BC. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on April 6, 32 AD. It's quite awesome. To the very day this prophecy came true. And why is he coming? He's coming to redeem the world from sin. In Hebrews 10, verse 12 through 14, it says, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. All right, now that was a great intro for Mark chapter 11. We're only going to go over 11 verses But I wanted to understand what it was that these Jews were thinking and understanding during the time of Jesus before he came. I'm sure there was a lot of confusion on what the Messiah was going to be. And now that the Messiah is is here riding in on a donkey, let's look at exactly what the Jews did. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage, And Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now, keep in mind, this is what I love about Jerusalem. It's on a hill. So whenever you travel to Jerusalem, you're always going up on a hill from whatever angle you come into Jerusalem. And Jesus sends two disciples. I I take note of that because I realize, look, there's value in friendship. There's value in companionship and of brothers and and sisters working together. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, there's value in brotherhood and fellowship. There's value in marriage. The Bible teaches that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Sometimes we think, oh, it's better to, you know, when you go alone, you go fast, and things are great, you know? You've also heard that saying that if you go alone, you'll go fast. But if you go together, you'll go further. And I like the idea of that threefold cord not quickly broken because you have you, your husband, your wife. And then God is that third cord binding you guys together. And that's the same in brotherhood fellowship. 
when you have iron sharpening iron, the Bible teaches. So a brother sharpens his brother's countenance. So Jesus sends these two disciples now. And then in verse two, it says, and he said to them, go into the villet opposite you. And as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. Now, they most likely had no idea about the donkey, the colt, being in the next town. Jesus just told them, hey, go to the town next to us. You're going to find a, a colt that's tied up. So that's kind of a step of faith of like, okay, we sure, let's go. <laughs> Hopefully there's a, a donkey there. And many times that's all we know is what God tells us. What t- God tells us to do. We're, we don't know what the outcome is going to be of when God calls us. We don't know the reasons sometimes when God calls us, but we know when he calls us. Now it's only because Jesus is commanding these disciples to to go that they obey. If it was anyone else, they have to be careful. You see, when Jesus called his disciples, first of all, to come follow after him, some of them had to leave their jobs, to leave their, their families, to follow the Lord. And the only reason that they would drop everything to follow after Jesus is because it was the Messiah calling them. Now keep in mind when I say leave their families, they're not divorcing their wives. I'm not saying anything like that. But some of them had to leave their their father's business. And some of them were even married. So they had to work that out on how they were going to follow the Lord and Jesus, but they let everything come second to Jesus. Now again, the only reason that a man like, let's say Matthew, a tax collector, making some money, is there at his tax booth and Jesus comes walking by and says, come follow me. Matthew just drops his job and leaves and follows after Jesus to become his disciple. The only reason that Matthew is able to do that is because it's Jesus who's calling him. It's the Messiah. I'm reminded from me personally right now, I feel that God is calling us. God is calling us to move this little fellowship out of a backyard to a unit over in Glendora that you guys haven't learned yet we signed a lease on and the lord is leading and guiding this so i would ask you guys to keep us in prayer for the lord to provide the funds to to make sure that we're keeping him first above all things in our own personal lives but i'm also excited that you guys get to see the work that god is going to do And who knows? Who knows? Sometimes God tells you to take those steps of faith. It doesn't always mean it looks like success to the world. You know, Jesus, in the world's eyes, when he was up there on the cross, his mission failed. In the world, and some of those non-believers, they felt, well, that didn't work. 
So that might not, probably isn't true. But that's what the world thinks sometimes. There has to be that faith. So now these disciples, they're looking for this donkey that Jesus called them to go for. And then look at verse 4. It says, So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? See, again, here's the world not understanding what's going on. They say, What are you doing? That, that doesn't belong to you. Why are you untying the colt? See, sometimes the world is not going to understand. When you follow after Christ and he begins to change your life, sometimes the world's going to ask you, what do you mean you don't drink or smoke anymore? You're going to wait till marriage to have sex? What do you mean you're, you're going to go work at a church? What do you mean you're going to go to another state, another country, to follow after this call of God in your life. You see, sometimes the world's just not going to understand. But I believe this is what God is calling his disciples to. You see, Matthew, when he left his tax collecting booth, he wasn't leaving behind his job to follow after a new religious pursuit or a new ideology to make his life better. This isn't a formula for success. This is really, it's a formula for our, our own death, our own self-death. The death to self. Jesus said to his disciples, he who, dires, who, he who desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, that's that constant, every day dying to self, taking up the responsibilities that God has given you, following him. There's a, a pastor and a spy back from World War II named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was actually in America for a season and felt the Lord calling him to go back into Germany during the Holocaust to help those Jews who were still there and to help those other believers who were there in Germany. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually went back. He ended up dying a martyr. Um, but there was a few books that he wrote before he passed. And one of them called The Cost of Discipleship, he writes that whenever Jesus calls a person, he bids them, come and die. You see, I'm reminded when it comes to discipleship of the two Moravian missionaries, Johann Aldober and David Nietzschmann. These two guys were so on fire for the Lord that they wanted to spread the gospel to these islands in, in Moravia. There was a bunch of slaves there. And the slave owners, who also owned the island, would not allow any missionaries into these islands. They didn't want the gospel being preached there. They didn't want freedom of Christ being preached on these islands. So the only way that these two 
missionaries can get on that island was to sell themselves into slavery to the slave owners. And I'm sure against their family's wishes, they went on these boats, and as the boats were departing to go to the the Moravian Islands, these two men looked back at their families who they were departing forever. This isn't just a mission trip that we're going to take two weeks, go down to South America and come back. No, this is a life commitment. And they held up their arms together and shouted to their family members watching them from ashore. They said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. They realized that they were Jesus's reward and they were giving themselves to Jesus by doing this. Now, perhaps God hasn't called you to go to Moravia today. That's fine. God calls us to follow after him nonetheless because God has his own personal mission for you. So may we follow after that. In verse 6, after the, the world was telling these guys, these disciples, hey, what are you doing untying the colt? It says in verse 6, And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. That's it. Miracle. Just like, oh, you're taking it to use for the Lord? Sure, take it. All of a sudden, a a flip of a switch on these guys' ideas of what they're doing. And I oftentimes see that sometimes God, Jesus, he works on both ends. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen 
white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So quite a different picture here given of Jesus coming back to the world on a white horse to fight in the battle of Armageddon with thousands following after him also on white horses. Jesus will come again as a conqueror. You see, that's what our our Bible, it's split up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This book right here, is truth. It has all the Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus' first coming. That was him here as a human being on earth. That word testament, it means covenant. It means promise. So the old promise is that there was going to be a Savior to come. That's Jesus. The New Testament is a new promise pointing to Jesus coming again that he will come for his church, that there is going to be, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. You hear the word rapture. Suddenly, Christ will come, take his church, and then after the church is taken into heaven with God, there's going to be seven years of tribulation here on the world. And at the end of those seven years, then Christ is going to come to fight in the battle of Armageddon, what we just read about to make an end of of Satan. Now, if you guys haven't seen it yet, there's uh, just technology. It's, It's been multiplying greatly lately. Exponentially, how advanced and advanced we are becoming in in society with our electronics, our, our devices. The Bible teaches that in the, the end times, that there is going to be a mark, a mark given by Satan, the mark of the beast, by the Antichrist. And it's going to be on the right hand of everyone who chooses to follow him. And you won't be able to buy or sell or work without this mark. Now, that mark does not exist today. Let me, let me clarify that. As of right now, in the moment, that mark is not here on this earth. You cannot accept the mark of the beast yet. However, I do see the technology is so there for it. Recently, Amazon just came out with uh, a new system of identification to help you buy things easier and more conveniently. It's called One. And all you simply do is scan your palm above the scanner and it identifies who you are how much money is in your bank account what items you've previously bought and it's not something that I personally am afraid of but it's something that I see wow okay this is you know you, you're going to scan that whatever device is on your right hand and it's going to tell you did he get the vaccine yet 
then he cannot enter. Did uh, Does he have this chip in him? No, not yet. So you can't work. You, can, you need to get scanned first before you could come to work here. So the technology is there. We're just waiting for Jesus to take his church. And knowing that this is the season that we're in, that we are getting closer and closer, and the more you see wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, those things start to happen more and more, know that Jesus is coming. I could go on continually on that topic, but I want to finish the text this morning. Look at verse 8. Back in uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 8. It says, And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is now, right here, a worship celebration. These Israelites are paying honor and respect to their king. See, worship, it's a response to who God is. I know... uh, when I, before I, I became a, a believer, worship was kind of weird to me. I was like, ah, I don't, I don't know if I could hold my hands up in a church service to a God that I can't see. I, I, it just didn't click. And then once I finally got saved and just had faith, I, I found worship to be a, a source of me to just kind of express myself to God of like, God, I'm like going through it right now. I just need you. But when I get up here before service, the worship, it's not for you guys. And when you guys sing, you guys are not singing for me. It's for God. You're singing to God. It's a response to who God is. God rains down his glory and says, I am glorious. And we respond and we say, you are glorious, God. That's what worship is. And what it does too when we do that is it gets our minds and heart focused on the eternal perspective, on who God is, what he's doing. So we can't get too caught up if the worship isn't fitting your style sometimes in a church. It's like, ah, oh, they're, they're kind of folky over there when they do worship. Or they're very like just boring when they do worship, stuff like that. Does it make a difference? Absolutely. I'm not saying it doesn't. But remember, just keep that in mind that when they're singing to God, it's to God, not to you. In verse 9, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. See that word Hosanna? It means save now. It also means salvation is come They're singing, blessed is he who comes. They're singing about the son of David, that prophecy that was given to their long past king, David, that one would come from his throne who would rule, who would never have his kingdom taken away. I was speaking of Jesus. They're saying save now, save from what? What were they seeking salvation from? This is, for some of them, not all of them, it was sad that they were only seeking salvation from the captivity of the Roman government. Many of them saw the Romans as their greatest enemy. 
But Jesus wasn't so concerned about the Roman government as he was concerned with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wanted to save the world not just from corrupt men, but from their own corruption. He wanted to make a way for them to live in eternity with God. This was Jesus' priority because it was his father's priority. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, we need to have that eternal perspective that Jesus, that God loves us so much that he's patient with us. He wants us to come to him. And sometimes we get so fixated on the outward things that we want God to fix in our life. Like the Jews were here. They were like, just get rid of the Roman government. Overthrow them, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not here to overthrow Rome. Sometimes we get fixated on the outward things too. We say, God, fix my finances. And God says, well, let's, let's talk about your porn addiction first. We say, God, fix my marriage. And God says, Let, let's talk about your drinking problem. We say, God, fix these family issues that I have. And God says, let's, let's talk about your anger problems today. You guys want to see revival from the church? And get alone with God. Put a circle around yourself and let it start in your own heart. And pray that it spreads. That's how we start revival. Lastly, verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So now this is the last week of Jesus' life here on earth, his life ministry. At this point, Jesus is going to the cross. He knows this. And before he goes to the cross, he's going to now pour into his disciples those last lessons that he can give them before he leaves. And he's not going to leave them forsaken. He knew that in three days after he was crucified that he would rise from the grave. So we're going to look at Good Friday. In fact, this Friday. I want to invite all of you to join us on Friday. Uh, Friday evening, 7 o'clock. We're going to have a Good Friday service. We're going to take communion here. Remembering the cross. Remembering the death, the passion of, of Jesus. And what it means to us. And then the following Sunday, we have Easter Sunday. And I want to, again, invite you guys and invite your friends, invite people who don't even know who Jesus is. Invite them. Allow them to come and to learn how Jesus can be their Savior. It's like you have the cure for the most horrible disease that is sin. And to keep it to yourself and not to share that with anyone, it's wrong. So invite them. And come dressed on, on Sunday in your, your Sunday best. Because people are going to be like, when they see you out there on, on Sunday, they're going to be like, hey, like, why are you dressed so nice today? And like, hey, it's Sunday. Jesus rose from the grave. Like, whoa, okay. <laughs> but it starts those conversations. So let's all stand.
See, we see that we need a savior in our lives. We see that we need God, we need Jesus so that he can help us to realize what are those things that we need to work on. To help us to follow after him fully and completely. To lay aside our own selfish desires and put God first. And we're reminded that Jesus, when he came into our life, he set us free. This is why we can sing to him. Why we are so thankful to be here in his presence. That he's leading us. And this isn't the end of our story. This story continues that Jesus, he will raise himself. The Holy Spirit, God will raise him from the grave. So that he can live in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. I pray and I ask, Father, that you would save now. Father, there are those things in our our hearts, our minds, Lord, that you desire for us to put on your altar, to give up to you. To say, Lord, I want you to, to take this situation in my life and do with it what you want. If that's you this morning, just uh, raise your hand and I, I want to pray over you this morning and ask that the Holy Spirit would empower you to do so. I see you. I see you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who rose their hand this morning. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would empower them, Lord God, to fully surrender that situation, Lord God. Father, free them from anxiety, free them from from sin, from worry. And Lord God, just replace it, Lord, with your calling, with your word. We love you, Father. We thank you for everything you've done in our lives. I pray, Father, for the rest of Redeemed Church that you would continue to, Lord God, put it in our hearts, our minds, Lord, just those desires that you have for us so that we can walk in your ways. May we just reflect this week on on Jesus, on the crucifixion, and his life, his death, and resurrection, Father. And may we apply it to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. One more song. You guys are going to be dismissed after that.
your presence All our fears are washed away Washed away Hosanna Hosanna You are the God who saves us Worthy of all our praises Hosanna Father also in the set would love to uh, hear you guys out and pray with you. We'll see you Friday.